Let's pray one more time uh, before we begin. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus, that on the basis of what he has done on the cross, you've taken a people from Sinai to Zion, that you've brought us to the city of the living God, that you brought us to the fullness of this redemption that he has wrought for us. And I pray, O oh God, that you'd help us to sense a, a deep gratitude for the work of Christ our Savior. Help us to sense, Lord, that we are so privileged to be here. Lord, to be part of the new covenant people of God, to be part of the church of the living God. We understand, Lord, that we are enrolled, we are members of the body of Christ based on nothing more than what Jesus has done for us. So we pray that you would help us to see the glory of this new covenant more and more. Help us to see the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. Help us to understand, Lord, what a what a glorious salvation He has won for us. Give us strength and help us now in Jesus' name. And I pray that you would help the sound guys too. In Jesus' name, amen. They don't get enough credit, those guys. You only talk about them when things go wrong. I thought I had a hard ministry. Well, we've come to another section here of this passage and we've been going really slow because there's just so much here that I I just really can't rush what Hebrews is telling us. One commentator said verses 18 to 24 is the climax of the whole letter of Hebrews. And he's right. We really have come to the apex of everything that Hebrews is about. And that is, and what we're looking at really, is what we can call the redemptive supremacy of Jesus Christ. This is part of the struggle of putting together these sermons. I don't know what to title them. Do I title it the redemptive supremacy of Jesus Christ? Do I title it from from Sinai to Zion? Do I talk about the covenant glory of Jesus Christ? What do I title this? Because it is so glorious, it just elicits our praise, our, our worship, that we glory over what is being set in front of us here. Now, we've come to verse 22 to 24, that's really the section that we're on, and today I want to talk about the end of verse 23, where it says, and let me read it again, it says that we have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Last week, we talked about the gathering of heaven. What does the gathering of heaven consist of? Well, it consists of a myriad of angels. It consists of the church of the firstborn who have been enrolled in heaven to the, the general assembly or the festive assembly of the angels. We saw all of that. We talked about the environment of heaven, the hosts of heaven, those that belong to heaven, believers whose names were written in the book of life who go to heaven. 
Now I want to focus on the righteousness of heaven. The righteousness of heaven. And of course, we know that our world today is very much unlike what is going to be found in the city of the living God. Because the city of the living God is characterized by righteousness. We saw that earlier, how that it is characterized by holiness and that the angels remind us that heaven is a, a place where God's holiness, His transcendent beauty is known and praised for all eternity. And now we understand that as we come to the city of the living God, we are coming to a nation that is righteous and characterized by righteousness. As a matter of fact, our present evil age in which we live is characterized by the word of God as that which partakes of unrighteousness or even delights in unrighteousness. Let me read a verse to you. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 11, the Word of God says, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they may all be judged, who did not believe the truth, but watch this, but took pleasure in wickedness or unrighteousness. This world is characterized by unrighteousness in every area of our lives. Unrighteousness pervades everything in our life today in terms of the world that we live in, in terms of the culture that we're in, in terms of the political scene, in terms of our entertainment, even our education. I mean, one thing that Donald Trump did recently that I agreed with is that he rolled back President Obama's legislation demanding that schools everywhere accept a transgender bathroom law that forces people's kids to have to go to the bathroom with the opposite sex. It's just evidence of this is everywhere. There's no question about it. Now, I want to talk about what it is that makes heaven righteous. Let me begin with this. Number one, the righteousness of heaven is seen by the fact that in the end, everything will be put right. In the end, everything will be put right. We are, when we're talking about heaven, we are talking about the state of absolute vindication. Total vindication. And you actually see this from the book of Hebrews. Turn to chapter 10 with me, just so you can see this, right? That, 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 that first, Jesus will be fully and finally vindicated for his redemption and for the great redemptive price that he paid when he became a ransom for his people. You see this in the eschatology of Hebrews over and over. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11, beginning there is a great place to see this. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that is Christ, our great high priest, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, watch this now, he sat down at the right hand of God and that is what we call exaltation. That is Jesus in his heavenly session, ruling and reigning in an exalted place at the right hand of God, which is the place of power, the place of highest privilege, place of total, absolute deity. Verse 13 tells us what exaltation is for. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. That's the language of vindication. When Jesus will be finally fully vindicated 
over all of his enemies. When Jesus returns, he will not be returning as a meek, humble little lamb. He will be coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. I think we don't understand just the, the, the power and the apocalyptic judgment that Jesus Christ is going to bring to this earth. Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 19, where it is depicting the second coming, we are told that one of the things that Jesus does, it says, He who is faithful and true, when He comes back riding on a white horse, He will come for righteousness and judges the world and He wages war. That's quite a little different than Him coming saddled humbly on a donkey. Now He's coming back in a place of 100% vindication. Completely vindicated for everything that he has done, redemptively speaking. And as a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul goes so far as to say, it is Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. How many times do we present the gospel that way to people, to our friends, or when we go out sharing the gospel, folks, that it is Jesus whom they will have to stand before. He will judge them. But second, we also see the righteousness of heaven in the vindication of us. Of God's people. Here, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You know this verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning of verse 6, speaks of this very thing, the vindication of God's people. So important. It says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those that afflict you. In other words, that verse, verse 6, is very precious for the persecuted church. Those who are presently under persecution, they will cling to a verse like this. See, we look at a verse like this and go, wow, this is, this is powerful. This is interesting. But if you live under persecution, this is your hope. This is what you hold on to. This is what you cling to. This is what gives you life. This is what gives you hope to go on. It says, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And here's the vindication, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great mistake of Islam. Islam thinks that Christianity is a joke because... Christians depict Christ as a weak and passive figure. No power, no authority, no dominion, no sovereignty. Well, if that's the kind of Christianity they've met, it's a false Christianity. And if that's the Christianity that Christians are presenting to Muslims, they are not giving them the full picture of what Scripture says. Because Jesus, in fact, does have authority, power, sovereignty. He is coming in absolute power. To judge the living and the dead and to vindicate all of God's people. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 16, and I'll be quoting from Revelation here and there again. Revelation chapter 16 verse 5, it speaks of this vindication and it talks about how God is going to repay those that persecute us. He says, I heard an angel. This is Revelation 16 5. I heard an angel of the waters saying, righteous are you. See the right, the theme of righteousness? How it pervades heaven because God is righteous. Righteous are you who, who are and who were the Holy One because you judged these things for they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets and you have given them blood to drink. Watch this. They deserve it. Wow. 
And I heard the author saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. You see, the reality is, is that heaven is a place of righteousness because in the end, everything that God has done will be vindicated. Every act of of God, every part of God's redemptive purposes will be vindicated. Look at Revelation 15 to see this. The evil world system one day will give way to God's absolute righteous judgments, which the psalmist would often plead for, will be realized in heaven. Revelation 15.3, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Finally, everyone will see it. There will be no doubt whatsoever what God's plan was about and there will be no doubt as to the outcome of this plan that it will result in the total vindication of the Son of God, the total vindication of the church of God, and the total vindication of the glory of God. That's what heaven is all about. Well, next, of course, heaven is a place of righteousness because of the righteousness of God Himself. Look at what it calls Him here. You just look again to Hebrews 12. Again, God is called God the Judge of all. Another way that you can actually translate that is the Judge God of all. And I think what's right here, though, is that the uh, the emphasis is on God's role as Judge of all, though He may, he may not be the God of all, as in the sense of a that everyone has or worships God, but He is the judge of all. He is the judge of everyone. Believer, non-believer, everyone will stand before Him in judgment. Uh, you know, today I think people think of God mainly as a sort of a cosmic cheerleader in the sky that's here to support us, to help us along the way. He's on our side. He's on our team. And that certainly is the moralistic, therapeutic, deistic picture that is given in many, many churches around the world. That God is just kind of exists to be there, auxiliary to your purpose, your plan, and what you have going on in your life. Quite the opposite is true, though. We don't live in an anthropocentric world, friends. We live in a theocentric world. We are here for Him. He created Israel for His glory. He does all things for His glory. He saves us for His glory. He redeems us for His glory. Everything is to be done for His glory. Everything is to uh, reflect something of the glory and the worthiness of God. His amiableness. The fact that God is perfect in every way. That's what the world exists for. But... Think of this title, that God is the judge of all. When you present a picture of God as judge, could there be anything more repulsive to the natural man? 
The natural man does not want to conceive of standing before the tribunal of heaven, before a holy God who is going to judge them for everything they've ever done. And so to what does man have to do at that point? Well, man has to, has to paint that as some sort of archaic, primitive picture, some outlandish, outdated, old-fashioned picture of a God that only belongs to a Puritan age long gone by. And that will not, no one will ever really encounter that God. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says is that everyone will be judged by God. Matter of fact, two things I want to emphasize here. The judgment of God on believers and the judgment of God on the wicked. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because this is good for us. This is good for our own personal walk, our own personal holiness, our own sanctification, that we, in a healthy sense, in the sense that the fear of God is pure and clean and holy, that we have a fear of God. And what I mean is that we are actually gripped by fear to know that the God to whom we must answer is holy. And of course, we fear not a judgment of condemnation. We fear not that when we die, we're going to stand before a God who's going to cast us into hell. Of course not. One theologian who said, when you die, that will not be the day that God decides whether to send you to heaven or hell. Of course not. And yet, I think a lot of Christians live under the weight of that. And you forget in the face of the, of the judgment of God, the awesome holiness and justice of God, the judgment of God, you sort of forget the theology of Hebrews. <laughs> we'll come back to that. But look at what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Make no mistake, there's no way to get around this. God is the judge of all believers and non-believers alike. Therefore, he says in verse 9, We also make it our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That's the proper response, by the way. Uh, It is not, I'm terrified of Him. It is not, I don't trust Him. It is not, I second-guess Him. It is not, I cast, you know, I cast a a, a doubt on His character. It is, no, rather, that the proper response to God's being judge of all is that we seek to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. He talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about ministers and ministry. And he says, depending on how you have built the ministry or the ministry of the gospel, whether you have used good material or bad material. In other words, saying whether your ministry conforms to biblical standards and biblical techniques and biblical philosophies of ministry or whether you've built with wood, hay and stubble. That will determine whether on that great day as God scrutinizes your ministry, what will remain and what will burn. And as a minister, Paul tells us, Seek to be pleasing to Him in every respect. So, Paul supports the same notion that Hebrews is teaching us here. If God is the judge of all, not only is He judge of all and He's the only judge, but He's the only judge and He's the only God. He is the God with whom we must do. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says that. Nothing, no creature is hidden from his sight. You see that? He didn't say no man, no woman. He says no creature. 
There is nothing hidden from the omniscience of God. Our judgment will be that we stand before not only an omniscient God that sees and knows everything. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, omnipotent, but he's all holy too. His standards are perfect and right. We all have to appear before the throne of this God. All things are open before him, laid bare. You can do something in the darkest, deepest corner of the earth. And it, it's as clear as day in the eyes of God. I remember when I was little, I asked my mom, she's here. When I was little, I was very deviant. And uh, as you can imagine. And I remember being just a little child, maybe five years old, and saying, and covering myself with blankets and pillows and getting under, as far under them as I could. And I would ask my mom, can God see me down here? I was trying to hide from God. But he can. Everything is open and laid bare before him. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, just to continue this theme, that God is the God of all, the judge of all. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Peter, I think, gives a really wonderful commentary on this. Turn to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. If you've done any study in the, what's called the latter part of the New Testament or the latter epistles of the New Testament, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about Hebrews. We're talking about Philemon. We're talking about uh, uh, yeah, 1st, 2nd Peter. We're talking about James. We're talking about 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude. That is considered the latter epistles, or the, excuse me, the general epistles of the New Testament. And a lot of times what you find is a theology that comes from the general epistles. So it's no surprise to find that 1st, 2nd Peter, James, Jude, these letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, often agree and coalesce with each other in a unique way that they don't coalesce with the rest of the New Testament, meaning they don't directly uh, inform things that are going on in those other books like they do with that section of Scripture. It's really amazing. Peter comments on this very thing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Here's evidence of it. God is the judge of all, believer, non-believer, everyone. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. You see that? And it begins with us first. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If we're subject to a kind of judgment, if believers are subject to a type of the judgment of God, where God is going to judge our motives, our deeds, the purity and quality of those deeds, if we're going to be judged by God in this way, if we have to face the great assize on that day, what will be the outcome of those who don't even obey the gospel? Nothing but wrath and fury and indignation on that day. And if it is difficult, and it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. Wow, listen to that verse, huh? I can testify to that. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? It certainly is. Uh, our, our lives, even as righteous people, now when the Bible says the righteous, uh, that is not uh, saying that everything that you do is righteous. Uh, the righteous is a technical term synonymous with believer, uh, just like the wicked is a technical term synonymous with unbeliever. 
But the righteous are saved through peril and trial, through temptation and a struggle and a war with sin. But if you don't even obey the gospel, Peter says, what is going to be your outcome? Can you even fathom it? That's what he's saying. Can you even fathom that? Revelation reminds us that whatever we are telling people about Jesus, if it does not include this idea of the awful judgment of God to come, we are simply out of step with the impending reality of His coming day of wrath. Look at Revelation chapter 6, or I can read it to you. Revelation chapter 6 verse 15 speaks to this very thing. The kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, and every slave and free man... They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand? How should that inform our evangelism? Are you telling folks in the midst of your evangelism, are you telling them a day of wrath is coming as such? You'd rather have a mountain to fall on you, my friend, than to face the awful wrath of the Lamb. This is how heavy it is. This is the gravity of God's judgment. Now, as we reflect on God's judgment, like I said, too often we could be prone as believers to sort of forget the theology of Hebrews. And what I'm saying is this, is that as we think of God's awful judgment seat, if we don't remember the gospel, if we don't keep ourselves grounded with the truths of Hebrews, we'd be tempted to become introspective to the point where we are tempted to doubt ourselves. And though introspection is good, and though self-examination is right, examine yourself in the light of the gospel. Examine yourself in the light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What is the book of Hebrews about? It is about Jesus' cross work. About His finished work for His people. Don't forget, in other words, that the sacrifice of Christ in the book of Hebrews cleanses us of our conscience. And I have verses for this. Please, by the way, um, by the way, please exploit my manuscript. (laughs) This note is for you. It's on the website. You can have my manuscript. You can look at it. You can, you can, um, you can benefit from it in this way that a lot of the points that I make, I never get to share the scriptures that I have for that point because then we'd be here for three or four hours. So I'm not going to do that to you, but it's there for you. Please take advantage of the manuscript. Why? Because my manuscript is so, you know, uh, 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 impressive. No, not at all. But because the scriptures and the points that go with it, I, I just, there's a shameless plug for my manuscript. Go to the website, get the manuscript, because He cleanses of our conscience. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. And those who believe enter into a state of redemptive rest in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 3. That through Jesus' suffering, God will bring many sons to glory. Don't forget this. Don't forget this. As you think about standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Our high priest is faithful and merciful to us. We have partaken of Him as long as we hold fast to Him to the very end. Jesus is our forerunner. Where He went, He went before us. 
In other words, he did it as a, he did it, he did it as a, as, as, as like a captain, a leader for you, for me, for the church. He is our forerunner. He has gone within the veil so that one day we will follow him there. So that glorious access is given to us through the sacrifice of Christ. That's why Hebrews chapter 6 says that we have in Christ, in our forerunner, we have, listen to this, not only a refuge, but we also have a hope like an anchor to the soul. You want to stay grounded in Christ. Hold on to Him. Take hold of His robe. Hold on to Him as your high priest and let Him lead you into the holy place. Our high priest lives forever. What could be more comforting as we understand that we have to face a holy God in judgment? Because you and I know the reality is we cannot stand before a holy God in judgment on our own. We have... What does Isaiah say? Our very righteousness is filthy rags. So most of us right now, we're thinking about things we've done wrong. Right? We're thinking about standing before the judgment seat of Christ and in our mind is, oh, the things I've done wrong. No, no, no. It's far worse than that. It's even the things you've done right, Isaiah says, are filthy in the sight of God. So that if you try to rely on those things, if you try to base your eternal merit on those things, you are doomed. Because you don't have the merit. You don't have the righteousness which is necessary which Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, and especially in verse 9 and 10, it is the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the righteousness that we need. It is not our own good deeds. So if you think of yourself as standing before the judgment seat of Christ, and if you think to yourself, oh, I better start accumulating more and more good deeds, be pleasing to Him, yes. Do good deeds, yes. But don't lose sight of where your hope comes from. None of those things. None of those things. No matter what season of life you've come into, God is using you in ministry now. Now you're serving in ministry now. Perhaps you're teaching the Bible to somebody now. Maybe God is raising you up. Perhaps the Lord will entrust you one day with a church, with a ministry, with a family. Perhaps you will be, perhaps you're growing. Perhaps you're growing in theological or theological acumen. Perhaps you're growing theologically. You're getting a grasp. You're starting to understand the faith. Understand that all those things are not the basis of your acceptance before God. It is only the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. On and on the book of Hebrews goes to give us this glorious theology of assurance. But heaven is also a place of righteousness because of the perfection of God's people. What does Hebrews say? We have come to what? To God. And we could even say we have come to the true and living God. Do you know how many billions of people on this earth think they're coming to God and are in fact not coming to God? Even worse, they're coming to an idol. Well, Paul goes on to say, if you're coming to an idol, a false religion, a false God, what are you really coming to? A demon. People are actually worshiping demonic philosophy, demonic entities 
in worshiping false deities, false God. But we, through Jesus Christ, we have come to the true and living God. This is sometimes, you know, I thought, how can I just harness the, 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 just the thought of deity? You know what I mean? Just, we just stand there. I've done a sermon on one verse, but man, I thought if I do a sermon on one word, God, <laughs> that might not go over too well. But He's worthy of it because He's the true and living God. He is the judge of all. And we have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What a glorious statement that is. The spirits of the righteous made perfect simply speaks of the departed spirits who have died and gone into the city of the living God. And of course, by now, the spirits of the righteous made perfect is anyone who has departed and gone into heaven and has gone into a perfected state. Now remember, the term perfect is a theologically loaded word in the book of Hebrews. Turn to chapter 7 of Hebrews just to kind of give you a little example of that. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. He says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood on the basis uh, on the for on the basis of it that people receive the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? In other words, that word perfection there is talking about bringing a person to a state of spiritual perfection, acceptance with God, where you are, to use the language of Hebrews, where you are ceremonially cleansed by an efficacious blood that truly cleanses you spiritually, not just externally. There's plenty of people in the Old Covenant who fulfilled all of the ceremonial duties of the law but did not have perfection because although they did external performances, they did not have internal reality. Are we so different today? A lot of people are doing a lot of external things with no internal reality. Never forget, probably about 20 years ago, I was standing with a pastor friend of mine at his church, and we were just sitting there talking, and here comes a young man, 17 years old, and he walks up, and I could tell just by the way he was coming up, he was disturbed. He comes up, this this skinny young kid, he comes up trembling, physically, visibly shaking, and he came up to his pastor right in front of me, and he said, Pastor, I just wanted to let you know that I don't think I'm a Christian. And this is a kid that had gone through the church as it all the way from the nursery, all the way through youth ministry, all the way through the channels of ministry for young people in the church. And he came to the realization at 17 years old, I'm not a Christian. Everything I've been doing externally has just been just to show other people that I'm willing to go along with what everyone else is doing around here. But there's no internal reality. There's no perfection. He has not been brought to a place of perfection. He has not been brought to a place of actual union with Christ, actual forgiveness of sin, actual regeneration. And therefore, heaven is a righteous place because it it is the abode of all those who have been perfected in Christ and will be... I think we have to bring in a little bit of systematic theology here, right? Even though... They are spirits. We know that being uh, unclothed, as Paul talks about in First Corinth, I think it's Second Corinthians chapter five, 
where he talks about that's not our goal, to be without a body. And so though these are spirits in an intermediate state with God waiting for the resurrection, as one commentator says, they are as good as resurrected and glorified. That's right. Because they have come to partake of the city of the living God, of Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, all of that. All of that. It also tells us, brothers and sisters, so that we can agree that those spirits who have gone on, those believers, the souls, they have gone on not just to a better place, but they have gone on to a better state altogether. Can you say, ask yourself, write this down. You haven't been taking notes today? Write this note down. Can you say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain? Can you say that to depart this evil present age, to depart this world, and to go and to be with Christ, what does he say? Is very much better. Can you really say that? That it is just so far better to leave this sinful world behind and to go and be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Infinitely better. Far better. Or are you still so earthly that you, that you have your tent pegs so deep into this world that you can't even imagine not living in this culture, this society with this, you know, with everything that we have around us We're so stuck here, aren't we? Every app that you get, guess what they want you to do? Get another app that you're going to need for that app. You can't do anything today with technology. I was looking for uh, appliances the other day. And I looked around. An app for my appliance? What in the world? Robert would probably get something like that. (laughs) It just underscores the reality. This earth, this world, this evil world system is very good at wrapping its tentacles around us, getting us to think in a way that there is, that we can't even imagine anything other than this earthly life. But what does Hebrews say about those who find acceptance before God? We've already read it. Look over at Hebrews chapter 11. And let's read it in its entirety because it has to do with heaven. Exactly our context in chapter 12. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 13. All of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, somehow you and I, brothers and sisters, though we are inundated with technology, we still must be able to view ourselves as sojourners who are just passing through so that the next iPhone, X, Y, and Z, one million edition of the next iPhone doesn't hold our heart. That we can let go of these things. And he says, there were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Is that you? Are you longing to belong to another world? And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have an opportunity to return. 
So they weren't just speaking about Mesopotamia. But as it were, they were desiring a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, you see that? You are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And one of the characteristics of the spirits is righteousness. Where here, here we're being told that, that an evidence of a righteous spirit, let's say, a righteous person, is somebody who desires a better heavenly country. And guess what? The person who is characterized, who is marked and distinguished with that sort of holy ambition, spiritual desire, heavenly mindedness, that is the person that God is not ashamed to be called your God. For He has prepared city for them. If you're not heavenly minded... You are ungrateful for the metropolis that God has created for you. You, we're not grateful. If we're not heavenly minded, it means we are not thankful that God has created for us a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem, that He's created for us a heavenly dwelling, a place of such unspeakable beauty that the author of Revelation, John, the revelator, that all, the best he could do is, is he could sort of describe it in the precious gems of his time. There's no other way to say it. I saw a sea that was so magnificent. He said it was like a sea of glass, transparent in beauty. We cannot even fathom the things that God has prepared for us that love Him. The spirits of those who have been made perfect. They're characterized by righteousness. They're also perfected by God. Isn't that wonderful? No place for anything like sinless perfectionism. This is not saying anything like that we can be perfected in this world. We cannot. It's in the passive tense, which means God monergistically is going to glorify us, meaning He alone will have all the credit for bringing us to that state of final perfection with Him. And as we think about all of this cumulatively, the effects of Zion, with these things in view, the vindication of God, His righteous judgment, the perfection of God's people, what do we take away from this? What do we take away from this? We should bear in mind the overarching context. You remember what's happening in this context. We are going from Sinai to Zion. This is a covenantal worldview shift. We are leaving a physical mountain that can be touched. And we are approaching the heavenly mountain, Zion, Mount Zion, which is the New Jerusalem. And we have already come to this new Jerusalem. We've already become partakers of it spiritually, positionally in Christ. The aim of this text is to incentivize us, brothers and sisters, to set in front of us hope, to incentivize us to see that we stand at a privileged position. We don't stand on the shore of Canaan but we have come right into the city of the living God. We have an incredible vantage point in the new covenant. We are blessed to see very clearly God's redemptive plan being unfolded and being consummated in Jesus Christ. 
The vindication of God and us, His people, the perfection that Jesus has brought on the cross, unlike Sinai, our encounter with God on Zion should leave us reverential, but at the same time, full of joy and hope and peace. You remember what it says about Moses? It says he was trembling. He was he was full of fear and trembling and we made a case that the holiness of God when you come to Mount Zion the holiness of God doesn't go down it goes up but guess what goes up with the holiness of God not just our fear not just our trembling but also our joy also our peace also our hope because we are partakers of a new covenant because not to leave you hanging but to hopefully bring you back next week We have come to the sprinkled blood. Sprinkled blood is just symbolic of and indicative of the fact that the perfect life of Jesus sprinkled on us, spiritually speaking, cleanses us and makes us acceptable to God. Appeasement, propitiation, expiation, not just removing God's wrath, it removes our sin. So that it, it removes our sin so that God doesn't even remember it anymore. That is something to glory in, is it not? Father, the Bible says, should you mark iniquity, who could stand? And yet, Lord, you have chosen on the basis of the cross work of Your Son. You have chosen to consecrate us, to set us apart, to cleanse us, to redeem us by the blood of Your Son. Not by the blood of bulls and goats that can't take away our sin, but the blood of Jesus that not only does it take it away, but as if it is, you forget it altogether. You cast it away from as far as the east is from the west down to the bottom of the sea. It's gone. What a glorious hope, the new covenant. Help us to live in that hope. And help us to live in the awesome reality that one day we will give an account to you and how we held fast to that hope. And we pray that you would give us the perseverance, the endurance, oh Lord, the strength. Even as we just heard from Hebrews 12, that at times our knees are feeble and our hands are weak and we need strength. Oh God, we confess at times we have to crawl for all of this. At times we have to agonize in order to live with the assurance that Jesus Christ affords to His people. And so God, we pray that You would help us to do that. Help us if we must to come to Your commandments that we may have life to look upon Your law so that we would be revived. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.